Welcome to the Seneca Podcast, a weekly discussion of current affairs in China, produced in partnership with SupChina. SupChina is the best way to keep on top of all the latest news from China through our daily email newsletter, our website, our app, and our growing range of videos and podcasts. It's a feast of business, political, and cultural news about a nation that is reshaping the world. I'm Kaiser Guo, coming to you today from Chapel Hill, North Carolina. Joining me from his stately Nashville Pleasure Dome, where Alf, the Sacred River, ran, is a man who dines on honeydew and drinks only the milk of paradise, Mr. Jeremy Goldcorn, of whom it is often said, <laughs> noting his flashing eyes, his floating hair, all should cry, beware, beware. But actually, he's pretty nice once you get to know him. Oh, Ziyumi, Khan of Khans, greet the people. <laughs> yes, obey all of you. <laughs> Otherwise, we're coming with our horses and our um, weapons that we will scavenge from Kaiser's house. <laughs> uh, I shouldn't have smoked that opium before this, right? I'm having these. No, I guess right, not. Right, yeah, that was dumb. Okay. Yeah. Uh, anyway. Yes. Anyway, on this show, one theme we like to explore is China's relations with different geographies around the world. There has been probably a little too much of China-US relations lately, not only on the, on the podcast, but also uh, on our website and newsletter. But hopefully everybody recognizes that the US-China relationship is especially consequential and will forgive us for a little too much US-centric uh, uh, news coverage. Uh, but our sister podcast, the China in Africa podcast, uh, covers uh, another of the really important areas of, of China's relationship with the outside world. And we have also ourselves on Seneca done shows on China, Japan, Eastern Europe, India, a little bit on Southeast Asia, and one fairly recently on Venezuela. So we are attempting to expand our geographical footprint and today we at last turn to an area that we have never examined at all on Seneca which is China and the Caribbean or do I say Caribbean? You can say whatever you like. Uh, anyway with us here to talk about that is Leland Lazarus a foreign service officer with the U.S. State Department who is stationed in Barbados and covers most of the Caribbean. I say Caribbean. <laughs> uh, Leland is a Mandarin speaker whose prior postings have included stints at the China desk at the State Department in Foggy Bottom, out in D.C., a, a posting at the U.S. Embassy in Beijing, and then in the consular section of the Shenyang Consulate. Leland Lazarus, welcome to Seneca. Kaiser, Jeremy, it is a pleasure to be here. I am a religious listener to the podcast, so it's an honor to be on the show. All right. And I say Caribbean. Caribbean. Uh, maybe my... Caribbean colleagues would say, you idiot, it's Caribbean. But I guess we'll oh. find out afterwards. Yeah. I, I mean, while we're talking about names and pronunciation, you have a lovely name, Leland. Um, Leland, can you tell us a little bit about your career to date? How does a China guy get posted to the Caribbean or Caribbean as a consular officer? Uh, was it in this case because of your China training or something else? Well, in the Foreign Service, they always say worldwide availability. And that means that no matter what your background is or your specialty was when you joined the Foreign Service, you go, at least for your first two tours, to where the government needs you to go. And so, of course, um, even though my background, my academic and professional background is with China, my second tour was to the Caribbean. 
But what's interesting is even though I came here to Barbados thinking that, hey, I was going to take a quick respite from uh, U.S.-China relations, I found out, <laughs> wow, uh, actual, actually China's influence is even here in the Caribbean. And so my official title here is the Deputy Public Affairs Officer at the U.S. Embassy in Barbados in the Eastern Caribbean. But because of my background, I also help to analyze China's influence in the region and help to develop a way to counter that influence. Uh, uh, Leland, before we dive in on China and its influence in the region, uh, give us a quick overview first of the actual countries that you cover from your office, and then talk about the COVID-19 situation in Barbados. You just actually left uh, Florida, I guess, and, and, and came back to Barbados. Uh, what's, the, what's the situation there with COVID-19? Kaiser, I left Miami yesterday, returned oh. back to Barbados. So I'm <laughs> right here in sunny Barbados. Uh, you must be envious of me. I am. I am. <laughs> we all of us are. <laughs> uh, and you know what? The Caribbean has handled COVID-19 very well. Mm, I'm glad to hear it. Of course, uh, of course, this is a issue that will remain with us for quite some time, at least until we find a vaccine. So I don't think any place in the world can say that they're 100 percent cured of COVID-19. But at least Barbados and this region, they were able to shut down their airports very quickly. They stood up a very robust contact tracing team. So when I came to the airport, uh, they specifically you know, sent me back uh, home and I had to quarantine for 14 days. And they gave me a thermometer that I need to check my uh, temperature once in the morning, once in the evening, and someone from the Ministry of Health will come once a day to check on me. Wow, that's great. That's outstanding. So again, what what regions do you cover? So obviously um, Barbados, uh, yeah, so and, the, Antigua. There are seven countries in total that the U.S. Embassy in Barbados is responsible for. That's Barbados, Antigua Barbuda, Dominica, Mm -hmm. Grenada, and then we call them the three saints. So St. Kitts and Nevis, St. Lucia, and St. Vincent and the Grenadines. Hmm. Now, each of them are unique in their own special way, whether it be the food, the culture, uh, relationship with the U.S. Um, I've visited all of them so far, and uh, I can't be biased on which one is the best, but all of them have great <laughs> beaches. All of them have amazing people. Uh, all of them have long-standing <laughs> relationships with uh, with the U.S. I think I should try to visit them all in turn, especially the beaches. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I think we should just move there. Uh, I'm, move I'm the up for it. There. Okay. Hey, well, um, you know what? You know what? Barbados just created a new policy, a 12-month stamp. So anybody who wants to work remotely can work remotely from Barbados for 12 months. You got so a couch? Welcome invitation, gentlemen. <laughs> I'm coming. All right. I'll book <laughs> Here a flight. I come. <laughs> it's either Fiji or Barbados at this point. <laughs> I have family in New Zealand, so Fiji has certain geographical advantages, yeah. but that sounds really good. Um, Leland, let, can we start with, like, um, with a big picture question from uh, Beijing's perspective? Uh, from like a hard-nosed geopolitical Machiavellian perspective, what is it? Do you think that Beijing hopes to achieve in its diplomatic initiatives in the 
I'm still going to say Caribbean because that's how I grew up. <laughs> um, are there valuable resources uh, or uh, is it just support in the UN? Or what does Beijing want? I think it has to do with a couple of things. So some Caribbean countries, like Jamaica, for example, has bauxite. Uh, and right. so the, the Chinese are trying to just uh, increase their natural resources, whether it be bauxite, aluminum, um, other natural resources. Uh, another thing is increasing its exports, ah. especially its excess steel capacity, which goes into the infrastructure projects that are in the region. Uh, I want to reference Jamaica again. There's a $720 million uh, infrastructure project with the Chinese state-owned enterprise to create the North-South Highway. Wow. Um, right here in Barbados, there is a early 19th century castle uh, that's called Sam Lord's Castle or Sam Lord's Castle, <laughs> um, which had plans to uh, turn it into a resort. And a Chinese state-owned enterprise called Complant is uh, sort of won the rights to that um, project. But, you know, that project has actually been stagnant for um, quite a bit of time. And the reason for that is um, issues with labor, how mm. many local uh, Barbadians are actually going to get jobs as opposed to imported labor from China, uh, and an issue in terms of transparency and uh, about the project itself. These are two problems that China has never encountered before in its dealings with Africa. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> never, absolutely never. Yeah, God. Same old song and dance. Uh, but uh, one more thing I would add is, I think another thing that makes the Caribbean and Latin America and the Caribbean in general uh, attractive to China is it is in a uh, area of strategic importance for the United States. Mm -hmm. uh, it is an area of strategic importance, increasing strategic importance for China uh, because it can build uh, key ports so that its ships can pass through, say, the Panama Canal. Um, and, and again, going back to the need for uh, natural resources. Okay, so you've given us a little bit of a, of a sense of what China's looking for. I'm, I'm sure that there's, you know, votes in the UN is, is a factor, as Jeremy noted also. Uh, mm -hmm. And, and we'll, we'll get to the whole Taiwan-related stuff in a bit. But first, maybe let's, let's look at what China has been doing there. Okay, we've, we've talked about this $700 billion highway project, I'm sorry, $700 million highway project mm -hmm. uh, in, in Jamaica, but there's a lot of other infrastructure projects around and there's, there's pretty large development loan, other forms of development aid. And then, and then give us a sense of what they've so far gotten in return. So Jamaica, Trinidad and Tobago, Bahamas, Barbados, Antigua, Barbuda, Dominica, and Grenada are all signatories of the PRC's One Belt, One Road initiative. Hmm. And I would say that over the past decade, the Chinese government and Chinese private companies have invested billions of dollars in the Caribbean. Um, I had mentioned that North-South Highway project in Jamaica, uh, but there are also loans that Trinidad and Tobago received uh, in order to create a uh, arts center. Um, right. I mentioned the Sam Lord's Castle construction project in Barbados. Um, Antigua is another example in which a engineering company called China Civil Engineering Construction Corporation, they built an airport terminal there. 
uh, I visited Grenada many multiple times, and in Grenada there is a uh, housing projects that are built by a Chinese company. Hmm. There's also massive uh, loans that are going. I mean, it's not in your in your sector, but uh, there's a, a big loan to Trinidad and Tobago. There's mm-hmm. uh, a gigantic investment in the Bahamas, which is not in your in, not in your region, but. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, what um, would you say has uh, the Chinese uh, interest in the region and the development assistance? What has been the main uh, way that they have got involved in these local economies? Uh, is it investments is the biggest thing uh, or loans or in- infrastructure for resources deals or, or direct aid or what? It's been a mix of infrastructure projects and foreign assistance slash aid. Um, our region is unique because it is so vulnerable to hurricanes, right? And so uh, a lot of the countries, I'm thinking of Dominica and Antigua Barbuda specifically, um, are specifically vulnerable to hurricanes and they've received uh, aid from China on uh, hurricane resilience in the past. I think another issue is that a lot of these uh, Caribbean countries don't have access to funding from international financial institutions like the World Bank and the IMF. Mm-hmm. And why is that? Well, according to the metrics of some of these uh, international organizations, a lot of these Caribbean countries are considered middle income or high income countries. And hmm. so they don't have access to some of those loans that they would otherwise uh, need in order for big infrastructure projects. And of course, in comes China with 20 year concessional loans with just uh, 3% uh, interest rates, right? Right. And so it, it seems quite uh, attractive from uh, a Caribbean country's point of view in order to really create infrastructure projects in their own country. I remember uh, the, the Antigua and Barbuda ambassador to the U.S., uh, Sir Ronald Sanders, if I'm remembering mm-hmm. right. Uh, he wrote an op-ed not so long ago. He was saying basically that, hey, you know, the U.S. should stop with all these warnings to Caribbean governments to limit, you know, their financial dealings. You know, they've been urging them, as you'd expect, to limit their financial dealings with China, talking about, mm-hmm. you know, about uh, predatory uh, lending or debt trap diplomacy, right? Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. And 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 he's saying basically, look, look at these these terms. I mean, you're talking about like you said, twenty year loans, three percent interest rate. Uh, these countries have always been pawns. So you know, what does it matter whose money we take as long as we benefit? So I mean, you definitely hear a lot of the same thing around the global south, where where China's been been active. Is that a pretty mm-hmm. common attitude across the Caribbean? Uh, and what does the U.S. tend to say in response to this? So from my perch here in Barbados, I would say that there's a disconnect in the perception of China, say, amongst government officials and amongst the everyday Caribbean people. Mm -hmm. And why do I say that? Because China's infrastructure projects, their aid, and specifically in the midst of COVID-19, their COVID-19 assistance has been praised by local government officials. Chinese ambassadors in the region have posted positive op-eds about China being a friend. But from our uh, research on media monitoring, we actually see that on social media, any sort of comments that uh, are about China tend to be either negative or 
tend to be just apathetic about, about China, that it's seen as a big country far away. Uh, they don't necessarily know too much about what happened inside China. They just know that it's a big country that has a lot of money. And uh, so I think amongst the everyday Caribbean people, there is still this suspicion about China's uh, interests and aims in the region. Sure, sure. That, that, that sounds similar to a lot of what you see in African countries and mm -hmm. Southeast Asian countries and uh, Pacific Island nations, where the elites are quite happy to deal with China, but the people writing crap on the internet, maybe not so much. Right. No, it's so true. And one thing I wanted to mention is there's a relatively new organization. It's called the Caribbean Investigative Journalism Network. Mm -hmm. And they had a long article about China's increasing economic influence in the region. And one of the things that's, that's interesting that came out of that uh, article is really looking at the fine print of some of the contracts that some of these state-owned enterprises made uh, with, with some of these countries. And you read the fine print and you see that, oh, well, if X country does not pay the loan within a certain amount of time, well, then uh, that country needs to give up sovereign immunity um, for this port or for this project, um, which is concerning. It's the Hambantota thing, right? Yeah. Right, right. Yeah. Exactly. It's really similar to what we were seeing, say, in Sri Lanka uh, with the Hambantota port uh, in which Sri Lanka you know, couldn't pay on the, I think it was the $1.5 billion, right? And then uh, China now has a 99-year lease on that port. So from our perspective, our concern, say the, the U.S., is we don't want our Caribbean partners to be duped by China, right? We, we want them to um, meet China with a clear-eyed and transparent manner. <laughs> and uh, how... <laughs> Yes. <laughs> I, I can't imagine that there could be any, you know, State Department funding of this investigative journalism <laughs> network either. Right? Right, right. Um, so uh, how about on the sort of soft, so-called soft power, like mm -hmm. the cultural front? I mean, th there's a Confucius instant, uh, a, a Confucius instant. There's a, <laughs> there's a Confucius Institute at the, uh, in the University yes. of the West Indies. Is that the only one? Uh, is there controversy surrounding it? How do people in the Caribbean or Caribbean feel about China's soft power initiatives? Well, I can speak specifically for Barbados uh, because mm -hmm. I uh, I basically have friends in the Confucius uh, uh, Institute, uh, whether it be Barbadian studying Chinese or uh, some of the, the Chinese teachers themselves. Um, just for me, I know that uh, there must be so many people out there listening who are just like me, who um, have lived in China before and tries desperately to maintain uh, his or her fluency in the language, even though they live away from China. Uh, and so I frequently go to the Confucius Institute events and, and so on and so forth. Uh, there has been an increase in Barbadian students, Antigua Barbadian students, um, Jamaican students, to China to study the language or, or study at um, a Chinese university. Um, but in the main, it hasn't increased in, say, like an exponential level, right? 
Um, I right. think that just like elsewhere, the Confucius Institute is uh, trying to find ways in order to just teach the local population about Chinese culture um, and uh, put on events so that people will uh, know a little bit more about China. So it's it's not been terribly controversial so far. There's never been there's been a sort of movement to get rid of it or, or anything like that. Uh, no. Okay, I'm glad to hear it <laughs> because you know the Confucius Institutes are under such assault in the West and not always fairly. I don't think. Yeah, guys. <laughs> I know that there's like a large uh, Chinese community. <laughs> there's a large diasporic community of Chinese in Jamaica. We've talked about that before on the show. Are we seeing large flows of Chinese migrants to the rest of the area at all? Are there other Chinese communities being established on, on different islands in the region? So what's interesting is uh, here in Barbados, I would put, uh, there, there are different groups of, uh, say, Chinese in the region. So one of them are, of course, uh, families of Barbadians with Chinese roots, right? One of my close friends here in Barbados, he is, Chinese Barbadian, and his family uh, originally came from southern China to Guyana, and then from Guyana uh, came to Barbados to work. So you've got a group of, of, of those Chinese Barbadians. Then you have uh, Chinese workers who are here either for construction projects or for uh, medical brigades. What's interesting is that there's a group of, I think, 10 medical officials uh, from Guangdong province who are here working in Queen Elizabeth Hospital in Barbados. That's interesting. Um, Yeah, that's great. Then you have something called the Association for Barbados-China Friendship. Ah, is that kind of a united front? uh, Of course, you go there immediately. (laughs) (laughs) And you're probably right. Well, well, it it is a group of (laughs) Barbadians who have studied abroad in China or uh, did business in China and are now returned to Barbados. And their main goal is to increase the bilateral relationship. And so uh, one of the clear yeah. members is, his name is Chelston Brathwit, who was the former Barbadian ambassador to China. Yeah. <laughs> that sounds totally above board, Jeremy. I don't know. I mean, oh, yeah, I think you no, and your United, going on that. The United <laughs> Front, though, I mean, has become, it's like, it's it's to a lot of Westerners what the National Endowment of, for Democracy is to a lot of Chinese. It's like this, you know, all-purpose Sure, boogeyman. sure. It's a, a, a boogeyman you can blame everything on. But yeah, nonetheless, exactly. this operation sounds... Anyway. Uh, I don't know. Because, yeah, because okay. pursuing um, friendship, what, what must be... What I found interesting is the, that association, the AB... CF, they had a meeting, I think just a couple of months ago. And what was fascinating was the PRC ambassador to Barbados, he gave the opening remarks and he specifically said, uh, and we need members of the ABCF to uh, promote the truth about China. Uh, For example, the new national security law in Hong Kong has overwhelming support from the local Hong Kong uh, people. Uh, And uh, we must talk about <laughs> totally innocent operation, obviously, Kaiser. And, and, <laughs> okay, I'm going to give you this one. And, but. And all the all the uh, great things that China has done in terms of masks, diplomacy, and COVID-19 assistance uh, that should be spread throughout the country and throughout the region. So, yeah, yeah, I gotcha. 
Yeah. Can you give us an overview of the situation with respect to the uh, recognition of the People's Republic of China or, or Taiwan in, in the region you're responsible for? As I understand it, there are still quite a number of the states that recognize Taiwan uh, or the Republic of China on Taiwan um, as uh, uh, a diplomatic partner. Uh, many of these states are in the region that you are responsible for. Some of these are quite contested, as with the election in St. Kitts and Nevis, where the incumbent is pro-Taiwan, but his challenger is pro-PRC. Can you talk about this dynamic a little bit? Yeah, Jeremy. I think the Caribbean is an interesting place to look at and analyze the competition between mainland China and Taiwan. Because out of the 15 countries that still recognize Taiwan as an independent country, five of them are in our region. That's Belize, Haiti, and then what I call the three saints, uh, St. Kitts and Nevis, St. Lucia, and St. Vincent and the Grenadines. Right. And Jeremy, you hit the nail on the head. Recently, there was a election in St. Kitts and Nevis where the incumbent prime minister, Timothy Harris, and the Unity Party are pro-Taiwan, and the opposition, uh, they flirted with the idea that if they were to uh, get into power, they would switch diplomatic relations uh, from Taiwan to the mainland. Hmm. Now, uh, ultimately, the election resulted with uh, Timothy Harris staying on, but it gives you a glimpse of the country sort of being on pins and needles when it comes to whether uh, the, the country will switch during the next administration. St. Lucia is a perfect example, too. Uh, I think from 1984 to 1997, it recognized Taiwan. And then from 1997 to 2006, it switched and recognized uh, mainland China. And then from, 20, uh, from 2006 to now, it switched back to recognizing Taiwan. So I think there's like fiscal benefits <laughs> to switching off in. Right? Yeah, probably. But it's it's also quite a, uh -huh. kind of interesting that um, you have a very similar situation in the Pacific where Pacific Island nations are, I think, are also I mean, that's where you have the other center mm -hmm. of support for Taiwan and also, uh, you know, some switching mm -hmm. back and forth and uh, political jockeying. Um, so I, I, is it, do you think that uh, small island countries are more predisposed to be friendly to another small island country of Taiwan? Or why in the Car Caribbean <laughs> or the Caribbean? <laughs> okay, let's stop that. We, <laughs> it's getting old now. Say, okay, okay. Do we say, well, so what do I say though? Um, say Caribbean, uh, say what you're used to. Caribbean, Okay. Why do we see a similar dynamic in the Caribbean as we do in the Pacific Island nations, do you think? Yeah, I think in this region in particular, dealing with Taiwan brings results. The yeah. Taiwanese has provided hundreds of thousands of masks and PPE uh, and thousands of PCR tests to the three saints in the midst of COVID-19. Even before that, they've provided uh, assistance in the agricultural sector. Uh, they fund millions of dollars uh, for students in the Three Saints to go to Taiwan to learn Chinese and to uh, do technical uh, exchanges. 
And then there's a program called the ICDF, the International Cooperation and Development Fund, which is similar to our Peace Corps, where young Taiwanese volunteers travel to the Three Saints to uh, volunteer in the uh, medical sector, uh, local hospitals, oh, cool. uh, or to teach Chinese in local schools, or um, even to uh, help out in, in terms of public health. So it all goes to the idea that having Taiwan as a partner means that you have a loyal and consistent uh, partner in, in development. And one thing I wanted to add is, again, uh, because of my background in China, um, I work closely with my Taiwanese counterparts on uh, amplifying our foreign assistance messages, um, all of the foreign assistance programs that the Taiwanese do in uh, the region, we amplify in our social media um, and, and vice versa. And we try to help out our democratic partners uh, in the region who are doing um, good in the region. Well, that's interesting. So you're saying that the official social media accounts of the U.S. embassies and consulates in in the region actually amplify the sort of pro-Taiwan leaning messaging. Yes. Okay. I mean, I understand that you're a foreign service officer and you need to, you know, to hew to official American diplomatic positions when it comes to things like Taiwan. But it strikes me that that's more than tacit rooting for a kind of pro-Taiwan stance. And, and, I mean, I, certainly during the Trump administration, that whole thing has gotten a whole lot less tacit. Uh, but, you know, we do still recognize, you know, a one China policy. I mean, that's got to piss off Beijing, right, when they see you guys doing that? Well, I think what we do is we're supporting our democratic partners uh, in the region. And so if, for example, the UK um, provides assistance for COVID-19, we amplify uh, what they're doing. If the EU is donating PPE to uh, the region, we also amplify that messages as well. And so uh, mm -hmm. we do work closely with our Taiwanese counterparts to uh, amplify each other's messages uh, in order to just show Interesting. Um, those Caribbean partners and the Three Saints that uh, they are a stalwart and trustworthy ally. Okay, okay, cool. I mean, I get it. And from the time of the Monroe Doctrine on down, the U.S. has definitely regarded the Caribbean as uh, very much its own backyard, right? I mean, we all know that. I'd be surprised if the U.S. government weren't doing things to sort of actively counter, you know, rising Chinese influence. And if, if bolstering the Taiwan message is part of it, that doesn't surprise me. Uh, what What is the U.S. trying to do in that way um, by way of... of Sort of, do they have a, a good counter offer? I mean, I, I brought up earlier Sir Ronald Sanders in that op-ed um, that he wrote, the the former or the ambassador mm -hmm. to the U.S. from Antigua mm -hmm. Barbuda. What are we offering? What are we countering with? Are we giving? Are we going head to head against China in in terms of the development aid that we're offering or the infrastructure that we're building? Yeah, I think we're providing a transparent, sustainable, and democratic alternative to China's ambitions in the region. And what does that look like? We have a program called the US-Caribbean 2020 strategy, where we are directing monies to six different sectors, uh, health, education, uh, energy, security, prosperity, and diplomacy. Uh, 
right? And that comes with actual money. Um, $10 million, for example, for disaster resilience. Uh, we have a program called the Growth in the Americas Initiative, where we're really trying to get private investment into the region to help fund some of these uh, infrastructure projects uh, and, and other projects in order to help um, the, these economies grow. But I also think, uh, Kaiser and Jeremy, that there is sort of a shifting view uh, about China's intentions in the region. I had mentioned uh, before that sort of the um, officials tend to be positive about China's involvement, but sort of the local um, people tend to be pretty skeptical about it. Mm -hmm. And I think a perfect example of this is uh, recently in the local newspaper in Barbados, a former Barbadian diplomat uh, by the name of Mohamed Degia, he basically took the Chinese to task in an op-ed uh, about its horrendous treatment of the more than one million Uyghurs, right, in Xinjiang. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And then the Chinese embassy actually came back with its own op-ed saying, oh, well, you need to check the facts. Um, and so it shows how the Chinese are quite thin-skinned when it comes to uh, any sort of criticism about its internal uh, issues, right? Um, yeah, really. And, Imagine that. <laughs> um, so I think that more and more people are realizing the fact that, well, in terms of values, in terms of political systems, we don't necessarily have that much... Uh, in common with China, uh, whereas hmm. in the U.S. there are so many Barbadians who live in New York or Florida or Texas and uh, other areas around the United States, and that's true for um, other countries in the Caribbean, right? So we have a natural familial affinity and uh, natural economic and historical and political ties, and I think that's the kind of alternative that we bring. There is an issue of competence, of course. Um... And uh, competence is something that the United States has, as much as I love my adopted country, has not displayed a lot of in the last few months when it comes to COVID-19. Has the COVID-19 pandemic had any noticeable impact on the balance between China and the US and the region? Because I can imagine that um, some of the Chinese infrastructure projects that have been held up because of the mm -hmm. epidemic... Um, but the same would be true of the U.S. projects, too, I guess. And anybody who's reading the news will be observing our, you know... Our flailing state. Expanding yeah. <laughs> case count yeah. here in the U.S. I think at the very beginning of the COVID-19 pandemic, there was this back and forth, tit for tat, you know, uh, how many masks did you give and how many masks did China give, right? And oh my goodness, well, uh, um, we just received however many boxes and, and look uh, what, what's going on. I think now, I think that the, the U.S. has uh, by far provided the most money in terms of COVID-19 assistance. Um, and that's just by the numbers. Mm-hmm. Yeah, oh, really? um, to the and specifically like three million dollars to a uh, to the Caribbean Public Health Administration, um, millions of dollars to the Caribbean 
disaster and emergency management um, agency. And you would say that the, the U.S. assistance is ongoing as opposed to just, you know, one or two time donations, right? Yeah, I, I don't know. We'll take your word for it, though. So, so, so basically what you're saying is that it, it might very well be that at the end of this, the U.S. will come out looking, uh, if not more competent, at least as competent or more generous than China. In the car- I think in the long run, or the generosity makes up for competence. Yeah, I think anyway. in the long run, uh, absolutely. Especially now that we're in the midst of the hurricane season, the U.S. is working closely with our partners right now on th- disaster resilience. Um, we have a program called the U.S. Caribbean Resilience Partnership, uh, where we really work with our Caribbean partners on uh, pre-positioning a much-needed material when a hurricane hits. Right. Um, Yeah, Leland, the State Department clearly needs a PR agency because, yeah. <laughs> like, I didn't know really? about any of this, and I'm a, I mean, I'm, I read, I spend, you know, 14 hours a day reading the news. <laughs> well, <laughs> well, I mean, the other thing is like, yeah, I, I, it's all well and good, but then when we look at, at at the American territory in the Caribbean and how we did with hurricane relief and preparedness with our own, you know, soon to be hopefully 51st state. Uh, I, I can't say that we did particularly well with that. I mean, it doesn't come on, right? Well, I mean, I want to say the the facts still are that we provide um, a, a lot of material and aid to our Caribbean partners when it comes to uh, disaster resilience. Yeah. Um, last year, last October, actually, we had a um, resilience working group where. 14 different Caribbean countries uh, all gathered right here in Barbados to um, plan out, get a, basically create an action plan for the next hurricane season. Um, so I think programs like these uh, make the region more resilient and more prepared for when the next hurricane does hit. Yeah, so it extends to Puerto Rico too. Hey, Leland, there, there's been... You know, I, mean, I know I've, I've read about military exercises that the PLA has taken part in in different countries of the Caribbean. I've seen, um, you know, Chinese that there are Chinese military advisors occasionally in, in the area. Have PLA Navy vessels ever actually transited in in the area, to your knowledge? And I'm just trying to imagine what the American w- response would be to that. I I don't think that there's ever been any PLA. Um, you know, destroyers or any kind of sort of ships that were right. military ships that have gone through. Um, I do know that the peace arc um, has passed uh-huh. through for medical missions um, in recent years, sure. uh, in which case they provided medical uh, assistance in Venezuela, for example. Right. Right. Um, right. Mm-hmm. But we also have the USNS comfort, right? Our naval yeah. ship that comes in, Um, every few years to the region to provide uh, the same medical care. And actually last year, um, it passed through Grenada, St. Lucia, and St. Kitts and Nevis um, and provided free medical care to uh, more than 14,000 people. That's fantastic. That's great. That's great. Now, I mean, if, if it's going to be competition between the United States and China, uh, 
about who can do more good with their their medical ships. I think that's that's the kind of competition I want to see. Anyway, Leland Lazarus, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with us. I totally look forward to having you back on the show again soon. Uh, let's move on to our recommendation section, but first a word about how you, the listener, can help us out. Dear Seneca podcast listeners and fans, we were grateful to be able to celebrate the 10th anniversary of our podcast with you guys, and I hope many of you caught that and enjoyed it. We've come a long way since our early days in Beijing in that crude and cruddy studio. Uh, we are delighted that so many of you have come along with us on this ride. Today, SubChina is home not only to Seneca, but to eight other podcasts under the Seneca network. And we've racked up about a quarter of a million downloads each month. That makes us pretty proud. But we would like to do even more, and we need your help. In celebration of our 10th anniversary, we're launching a fundraising campaign to support our ongoing podcast efforts. We appreciate your showing your support, especially during these difficult days of the COVID-19 pandemic. So please, don't be shy. If you have valued the podcast and would like to see us continue to bring you wide-ranging interviews with the top people in the China field, please show your support. All the funds raised will go to support our team. We get to do the fun part, which is interviewing the guests, doing the research, and writing our questions. But we have many other hosts working hard on the other network shows. We have Jason, who tackles the editing and sound engineering on many of the network shows, making them sparkle. And we have Jeremy's editorial team, which does all the back-end support and works to get the shows up on the platforms like iTunes and Spotify and on all the right podcast apps. So help us out. This is the first time in a decade we have asked for any direct financial support. Show us that you value what we're doing and that you've learned something from our work and that we've made a difference in your understanding of China. Go to podcast.subchina.com. That's podcast.subchina.com. And help us out. Thank you so much. Okay, now on to recommendations. Jeremy, what you got for us this week? Uh, okay, so I got a book called "The Secrets of Snakes: The Science Beyond the Myths" by a biologist named David A. Steen, or as I would pronounce it, Steen, which means stone in in Dutch and Afrikaans.、Um, And he is also、uh, on Twitter at alongside Wild.、Um, and one of the great things I've just started the book on the snakes, which is very nice. And it's mostly about North American snakes, but I think anybody all over the world who's interested in animals will find it interesting. But one of the great things about David Stern is that if you tweet him a photo of a snake, he will help you to identify it.、Um, And I don't know if he can do this for snakes on Barbados, but he probably can. <laughs> oh wow! I I I want to check this guy out. I mean, I just noticed he has forty five thousand followers. I think there's probably like this whole wildlife Twitter that's probably a lot nicer than China Twitter, huh? It's a lot nicer than China Twitter. <laughs> wildlife Twitter is very sweet. Wow! China Twitter. Has become well. We all we all I know. think most of our listeners know, but it's pretty nasty. <laughs> 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 I even hate people I love on China Twitter. I mean, it's just yeah,、know. yeah, yeah. I know the feeling. I know the feeling. I hate、well. myself on China Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> okay, that's great. The secrets of snakes. The science beyond the myths. I, I killed a snake recently in my garden.、It、oh, was, you mean? He was a copperhead. He was like a totally 
poisonous mother. I mean, anyway. Just pick it up and put it right. somewhere else. Pick it up. No, I'm not going to pick up the snake. I mean, you and your people in that part of the country are snake handlers, maybe. But yeah, not I'm not sure if I would get close <laughs> enough to the snake to even take a picture to send it to this guy. <laughs> <laughs> Leland, what you got for us? Recommendations? I've got us. two recommendations, really three. Oh, excellent. So one is Gusher FM. Which is a podcast. Oh, yeah. Oh, yes. Seconded. Uh, it's a great sort of podcast for, again, everyone like me out there who uh, are China scholars but living away from China and desperately trying to maintain our fluency. Uh, this is a great sort of tool. Uh, it's about 30-minute episodes of really interesting stories. I mean, I think a recent episode was of a normal Chinese guy who just left it all to go and uh, serve in the French Foreign Legion. Oh, wow. <laughs> um, or a, That's a Chinese lady who uh, spent, I think, many years in Afghanistan and sort of figuring out uh, Afghan culture. So it's a really interesting uh, podcast. So I would recommend that. Uh, second recommendation is for any uh, scholars of color who are interested in uh, Asian uh, sort of politics, uh, specifically China. There's a new organization called the uh, National Association for Black Engagement in Asia, NABIA. And it's a repository of black experts on uh, Asian issues, China, uh, Korea, Japan. Uh, so if you guys haven't checked it out, uh, definitely check it out. Uh, see if there are any experts who could also be on the show. Oh, that's that's fantastic, and it reminds me that we're you know in August we're going to be taping a show uh, with Mark Akpaninye, uh, who's at he he was a, he's a, a China scholar who uh, has put together this Black China Caucus, mm. and they've put out this survey right now uh, to try to get people to, to sign up for a a list of China specialists in different areas who are, are people of color, or specifically who are black Americans, and, and not just Americans, black people around the world who study China. So make sure you get on that list. Um, and we're also going to have Keisha Brown, who's uh, at, at Tennessee State University, on that show joining us as well. Uh, and, you know, we'd love to have you back for that as well, Leland. That would be great to that have you That would be on. fantastic. And I think the last thing is, um, if anyone out there is, interested in say the foreign service or thought that uh this sort of job might be interesting definitely go to careers.state.gov um it has been a very interesting ride uh over the past five years thus far uh and so i bet <laughs> from, <laughs> from, from northeastern china right near the china north korean border to sunny barbados but still focusing on china relations it has been a wild ride, let me tell you. Sign of the times. Absolutely sign of the times. I mean, if I could get security clearance, <laughs> I would totally want your job, but I don't think they would have me. <laughs> well, me neither. I don't think I'd make it. Yeah. So, so uh, my, my recommendation, I was introduced to a, a Beijing band that uh, it was just, I guess, they, they put out their first album right before I left China. Um, but they play a type of heavy metal that I've always kind of championed and which I guess I was associated with. I mean, it's Chinese folk metal, which means heavy metal that has a lot of, you know, traditional instrumentation or a lot of sort of Chinese musical motifs or ideas. Uh, this band, which is called Chu Ge, is really terrific. 
Chu, as in the state of Chu, as in Sumian Chuge, uh, the the songs of Chu, right? Uh, the Chu state, of course, during the Warring States period, was one of the most powerful of these, and it was really quite culturally distinct. Uh, it was centered in in Hubei and and in southern Henan, but it was you know a really large state. It covered the whole sort of center of China. Uh, the 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 saying refers to this decisive battle during the 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 Chu Han contention, uh, where you know this general named Han Xin, who was you know one of Liu Bang's top generals, he had sort of cornered um, the hegemon of Chu Xiangyu, and had his troops sing the songs of Chu uh, to make them believe that they had already lost. Basically, anyway, the music is just really amazing. It's super riffy. It's it's grooving. They have a fantastic drummer, um, but it's also got this really kind of deathy intensity though the vocalist is really versatile he sings and sings really well has a good range but also does a lot of the growl stuff that not everyone likes you know the cookie monster stuff uh but it has a lot of really deep musicality to it i think anyone who's a musician would really appreciate how really musical these guys are uh I think they're all Chinese except for one who's a, a Norwegian. One of the guitarists is Norwegian. Uh, oh, of course. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's metal. Right? A Chinese death metal band. Of course it needs a Norwegian. Oh, come on. There, there are plenty of death metal bands without any La Wais. Anyway, uh, anyway a, a lot of bands have tried and failed to do this sort of, you know, bringing in the Chinese elements. Uh, but these guys, I think, succeed pretty unequivocally, at least in my book. So you can find their album, which is called uh, Yan Huang. You know, like the the fire or the the lava phoenix or whatever uh, on on YouTube, and uh, you can you know check them out, find find this this band Chuka, and uh, support them. Um, make they're they're really 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 talented. I haven't found a, a metal band from China that I love in a while, and I've been very excited. Anyway, Leland, once again, thank you so much, and you know best of luck to you in your career, and we'll talk to you again in a few weeks. It looks like. Thank you, sir. It was a pleasure, Jeremy. It was a pleasure, Kaiser. Thank, thank you, Leland. Stay safe and healthy. Uh, Jeremy, is always a, a pleasure. Yeah, I think you're fine in Barbados. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Don't you still open invitations? Think... You can work. All right, man. Just You got a futon <laughs> on there, man. Do, do they let Americans in right now? Can you we know, go there? 14-day quarantine. Uh, you know, commercial flights from the U.S. may open as early as September. Oh, okay. Oh, okay, okay. I can maybe you know hang out a couple more months in this. Then I'm there. I'll I'll bake bread for my rent. <laughs> <laughs> okay, guys, take care. All right, take care. The Seneca Podcast is powered by SubChina and is a proud part of the Seneca Network. Our show is produced by Kaiser Guo and Jeremy Goldcorn, with editing help by Jason McRonald. Drop us an email at Seneca at subchina dot com. Follow us on Twitter or on Facebook at at subchina news, and make sure to check out all the shows in the Seneca Network. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week. Take care.